The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the 16th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday the 9th of December and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the current economic situation, the war in Ukraine and its possible developments and the geopolitical situation as a result of the many crises in recent years. Let's get started. Today's first topic is about the economy and the instability caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. For a long time, it was said that the huge price increases would be mitigated only if the central bank restrained growth with high interest rates. Now inflation is coming down and the economy is recovering. Is this a miracle or are the scholars talking nonsense? Ask today's first columnist, Thomas Frick, of the German newspaper Der Spiegel. In fact, the European Central Bank's plan to fight inflation involves raising interest rates on the cost of money. Higher interest rates, many economists argue, would thus cause demand to fall, leading companies to lower prices. But Frick points out, now inflation is coming down and the recession does not appear to be as severe as feared. This is because, again, according to the German columnist, the inflation would be due to dwindling supplies caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and rising gas, oil and food prices linked to the war in Ukraine. None of this means that interest rates should not be raised in the presence of inflation, the reporter points out, however. Rather, it means that it is an inefficient and expensive way to reduce inflation, as well as causing a major side effect, namely curbing investment, such as in the ecological transition. It would therefore be wiser to address the causes at the root of higher inflation, such as gas shortages or excessive speculation, with the cooperation of governments. Whether in times of pandemic and war, or in the face of challenges such as climate change, Frick concludes, it is absurd to cling to a rigid model in which the central bank is the sole guardian of price stability. As we said at the beginning of the first section, the rapid succession of crises has shaken the global economy, as well as taken economists and governments by surprise. In the French newspaper Le Monde, Agnès Benesiquere questions precisely how recent economic upheavals can be analyzed to better guide policymakers. For example, the 2020 health crisis that crippled the world has forced macroeconomic scholars to shift their gaze to sectoral issues and value chains and how certain economic sectors interact with each other. Returning to today, instead, it is still too early to predict the consequences of the current energy and geopolitical crisis. However, we are already seeing a rise in inflation, which poses a big question for policymakers. If we know that a price-based indexation of wages must be vigorously fought, what is then the best strategy to preserve the purchasing power of low-income households? With such a rapid succession of crises, it is difficult for governments to make quick decisions without having analyses of what the long-term effects of the measures taken might be, the columnist concludes. The last editorial on the economy takes us across the channel and to the United Kingdom in the Financial Times. For Fatih Birol, director of the International Energy Agency, if the European Union wants to be able to keep up with China and the United States as economic players, then it will have to completely overhaul its industrial plan. 
the business economy of many European industries, the columnist explains, was based on the availability of abundant and cheap supplies of Russian gas. But with the war in Ukraine and skyrocketing fuel prices, the model has shattered and is no longer viable. The most energy-intensive sectors of the economy are already suffering, with some companies already shutting down. So far, individual governments have managed to limit the crisis with emergency measures. But the EU needs to outline a new long-term industrial plan, or risk de-industrialization. To do so, it needs to look to other sectors, Birol explains, which already offer cheaper options by harnessing solar and wind power, for example. In particular, the EU should replicate in other sectors what it has done with offshore wind, with which Europe has shown that it can be a global leader in clean technologies. The EU has many strengths to its advantage. Its large internal market, skilled workforce, broad network of research institutions and centers of expertise, and a long history of producing higher-value-added manufactured products. But these, Birol writes in closing, needs to be allied with a strong push in the form of a new industrial policy from the European Commission and EU member states. Today's second theme brings us instead to the reason for the economic and energy crisis, the war in Ukraine and its possible developments. According to data from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, there are about 7 million internal refugees in the Eastern European country, and another 7 million people have been forced to leave Ukraine. The first contribution to the second part comes from Mario Vargas Losa from the Spanish newspaper El País. Vargas Losa tells us about how the conflict is progressing, and the picture he paints is dramatic. Perhaps worse than the occupation of territory is what is happening in Ukraine these days. The Russian army has retreated, the journalist states, but now from its protected positions, it systematically bombs the places it abandoned thanks to the courage with which Ukrainians stood up to. Specifically, the Russian forces now bomb civilian targets and infrastructure such as power plants. The purpose of the attacks would be twofold, according to the journalist. The first, taking revenge on the civilian population out of frustration with the course of the war. The second is to deprive Ukrainians of electricity and heating now that winter is approaching. Zelensky makes repeated appeals to Western countries to send him the weapons he has been promised so that the Ukrainian army can bomb the territory from where the Russian strikes are coming from. But a rather widespread sentiment is that as time passes, the drama of Ukraine is becoming a thing of the past. The conflict should not be forgotten, the journalist argues, because Ukrainians are also fighting for us. That is, for the free countries that tomorrow could be threatened by Putin in his imperialist obsession. Precisely for this reason, Vargas Losa concludes, the West must rise to the occasion and continue to support Ukraine militarily. But as the conflict continues, there are already those who are looking at what will happen next. Such is the case with Paolo Lepri, who, in the Italian daily Corriere della Serra, gives us his take on the possible UN proposal for the creation of a tribunal to try Russian leaders. Biden's conditional readiness for a possible dialogue with the Kremlin was met with a wall of no's, the journalist explains. 
For his part, Putin made it a condition that the international community recognizes the areas annexed by Russia. But Macron made it clear that no one wants to push the Ukrainians to make compromises that are unacceptable to them. It is therefore necessary to pressure the Russian leadership and to strengthen the West's negotiating position. This can be done militarily on the ground, but at the cost of more casualties and more blood. Or it can be done politically, as is the case with the proposed tribunal. In this sense, the proposal for a special international tribunal represents a formidable weapon of pressure, maintains Lepre. This would not be the first time in history. Looking back, the Allies began working towards trying Nazi leaders well before the conclusion of World War II, is the thesis that closes the editorial. Today's final article on the war in Ukraine comes from the French newspaper L'Opinion, co-written by Alexandre Malafay and Bruno Catala. In the editorial, they too stress the importance of the peace agreement being accompanied by a trial of those responsible. This peace, they explain in the article, in order to last, will have to meet several criteria and it will have to do justice to the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian victims. Otherwise, for Ukrainians, a peace without justice would be incomprehensible. As for all those who believe and fight at the risk of their lives, for the force of law to prevail over the law of force. Indeed, the war stems from the very denial of Ukrainian identity as a nation and aims to annihilate its people. Therefore, the two columnists argue, Putin does not wage war by committing crimes, but has made crime the very principle of this war. That is why the establishment of an international tribunal is essential. But within the international community, it should be the Council of Europe whose founding words stress the need for peace to be joined with justice. Moreover, one of the Council's institutions is the European Court of Human Rights itself. Justice will need to be done because the scale of the mass crimes committed in Ukraine touches the very foundations of our common humanity. But the aim should not only be to bring Russian criminals to justice, Rather, they conclude, judging these crimes means giving us a chance to recreate the conditions for reconciliation and for a shared destiny. Today's final topic is the current geopolitical situation and the relations between states, which have been tested by the events of the past few years, first among them, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. For French Le Figaro editor Renaud Girard, one of the consequences of the Russian invasion was to consolidate the alliance between European countries and the United States. First, by resorting to violence, Russia destroyed forever the immense influence it had over the population of its Ukrainian neighbor, who largely shared its language, religion and culture. Girard explains, not only that the war cut off the relations economic and political, that Russia had been cultivating with Western Europe for a quarter century. And if one of the goals of the war action was to establish a multipolar world in which Russian influence would compete with that of the United States, it has instead achieved the opposite. It has been since the end of the Cold War that the Americans have not exerted such a strong influence in Europe. As evidence of this, French and American positions on the war are perfectly aligned, both on humanitarian and military aid to Ukraine, and on the timing and content of future negotiations. 
In Waging War, Gerard concludes, Putin overlooked a much better option for Russia, hoarding the Euros, developing Siberia, mediating between China and America. And it is precisely on the Atlantic Alliance, NATO, that the next editorial focuses. In Germany's Visit, Michael Tumann explains why Orbán's Hungary and Erdogan's Turkey are preventing Sweden and Finland from joining NATO, the most delicate NATO accession process since 1999. In doing so, they are intentionally putting European security at risk. Both would have strictly personal motives, according to Tumann. Orban cares about money. Indeed, the European Commission is withholding the approximately 13 billion euros it is supposed to give to Hungary because of its repeated violations of the rule of law. But Orban urgently needs the money in order to be able to distribute the benefits promised in the last election campaign to the population. So he has decided to take revenge indirectly on the EU by stalling NATO. Erdogan's final goal is power. The Turkish president is facing difficult elections ahead of him next year because of high unemployment, rising inflation and a shrinking economy. According to polls, less than a third of Turkish citizens still support this party. So Erdogan decided to create another narrative to distract his people by bombing Kurdish militias in northern Iraq and Syria. He then again asked Sweden for the extradition of Kurdish activists, Turkish opposition figures and journalists, a request impossible to fulfill as these are politically persecuted people. Erdogan knows this and he keeps the dispute on hold because he wants to exploit it in next spring's election campaign, the journalist argues. But what can NATO do to resolve the standoff? But what can NATO do to resolve the standoff? According to strategic advisor Stephanie Babst, who has worked for 22 years at NATO, the alliance could get around the problem by pushing all NATO countries willing to provide assistance to Finland and Sweden thus protecting the two countries from a possible Russian attack, even though they are not yet full NATO members. At the same time, it would send a signal to the current and future egoists. NATO is still able to act as a multilateral alliance even if the nationalists want to prevent it. And today's final editorial comes again from the Britain's Financial Times. Having achieved a legalistic peace at home, the continent grew blind to conflict outside it, argues Janan Ganesh, bringing back the debate on the role of the European Union and its member states in the world. This entire worldview and model of conflict resolution through which Europe used to interpret geopolitical issues have failed. The mistaken worldview led to errors of judgment that compromise the security of all of Europe also guilty of a lack of defense spending that will take a political age to reverse. This recent turn in international relations will be difficult to accept because it challenges the very heart of the European integration project, which, however, is credited the continent's post-1945 peace. Before the conflict in Ukraine, most EU countries saw summits and institutions as the only way forward within global diplomacy, just as it works in European institutions. However, thus avoiding the rougher side of global leadership and remaining the military junior of America. And we are guilty of often forgetting how strange this is. 
a rich continent, more populous than the US, still looks an ocean away for guardianship. This neglect, perhaps caused precisely by the success of the European project, Perpetual Peace instilled some mental habits that don't travel well in the wider world. I'd say the EU was a victim of its own success, Ganesh concludes, if the victims this year weren't just outside it. We are ending the 16th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Thank you so much for following us and we hope to see you next Friday again with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone, it's Gail Rago. See you all next week.